Hi, I'm Angela, and I'll be reading today's scripture, which comes from Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Amen. And now let's give our attention to the preaching of God's word. Thank you, Angela. Good morning. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, specifically the Artesia campus pastor. So it is such a pleasure, always a privilege to bring the Word of God, but always also a pleasure to come to the Fullerton campus uh, to deliver the Word. Uh, today's sermon is entitled Shalom for the City. And just uh, right off the bat, a point of clarification. When we say, when I use the word city today, I don't mean the city as opposed to the suburbs or the city. Uh, as opposed to the rural countryside, but quite simply the city where we find ourselves, the city in which we live, the place in which we live, be it the city, the state, the country even, uh, our land, the, the land we live in. Uh, and in Jeremiah 29.7, that last verse of the passage, uh, we find a lot of shalom in that passage. That's actually why I chose this passage about a month ago as we continue in our shalom series in that last verse in Jeremiah 29.7, uh, you see in that verse, every time you see the word welfare, uh, that word welfare is actually in the Hebrew, shalom. So if you look at the, we, I, I'll have it projected for you, if you look at that last verse, 29.7, it says, seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord in its behalf, for in its shalom you will find your shalom. And just as a reminder, this word shalom is a deep and profound Hebrew word that can be defined as wholeness or completeness, a welfare as it's translated in this verse, or quite simply, peace, but of course, a deep and profound peace. And shalom is not something we seek simply in our personal lives or in our families or even just within the walls of the church. But our passage today reminds us that shalom is something we seek in our land as well. Something we seek in our city, in our state, in our country. And as we look in the city around us, we do see a brokenness, a tragic lack of shalom. It's so clear, especially currently, as we continue to grieve and as a nation, as we're still reeling from the tragic shooting in Uvalde, Texas, where there was a senseless murder of 19 children and two teachers, we see clearly such a lack of shalom that we want to seek shalom. And we will definitely spend an extended time of prayer after this message for those in Uvalde. And we ask the Lord for shalom in the city. We are called to ask for it. We are called to seek it. And today, quite simply, we will explore some insights from Jeremiah 29 
of how we are to seek shalom for the city. Just two simple insights for us today. The first one is this. We seek shalom for the city while recognizing we are exiles. The context of Jeremiah 29 is that God's people are in exile. This is a dark time for them. This is a hard time for them. This is a shocking time for them. And they are taken captive by the Babylonian Empire. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, he had pillaged Jerusalem. He had even pillaged the temple of God. And he had taken the Israelite king and the royal family and all the king's courts and all the other important people of Israel, literally took them out of their land and held them captive in Babylon. And Jeremiah's message to the Israelites at, in this context and at this time is all the more radical in light of the context because he's saying, he isn't saying, care for and seek the shalom of your hometown. Seek the shalom of your motherland. No, he's saying, seek the shalom and care for this city which is even oppressing you and holding you captive even as you long for your true city. And that was true for the Israelites in Jeremiah's time and in many ways that is true for Christians today. The New Testament refers to all Christians as exiles. The New Testament refers to Christians as sojourners, as pilgrims, people who are traveling through. We are passing through. We are, we are not home yet. We are still making our way to our final destination. We are still awaiting our ultimate home in the new heavens and the new earth. And the brokenness that we experience, shootings and, and sickness and hatred Injustice remind us all too painfully that we are not home yet. And what's so profound about the word of God in light of this is that despite the fact that we are pilgrims and exiles and we're not home yet, we are still to seek the shalom of the cities in which we find ourselves. Even though our true citizenship is in heaven, the Bible never calls us to retreat. The Bible never calls us to be apathetic. The Bible never calls us to be so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good, as we often hear, a criticism of Christians and perhaps just religious people. No, we are to seek shalom even as exiles. And being an exile does mean that there's a difference. Being an exile does mean that we ultimately represent our heavenly city, our heavenly citizenship. And so as a result, exiles, we don't plunge all the way in to our culture of our earthly city. We don't plunge all the way in feet first. We don't fully identify ourselves with the earthly city, nor do we fully follow its ways. And we seek shalom nonetheless. In, in 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, there's that phrase again, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Meaning, be, the by definition, being a sojourner in exile means you're not going to uh, uh, be defiled to a degree, to, in a sense. You're going to abstain. You're going to make sure. You're going to have discernment that you don't just become just like uh, uh, the rest of the world in the passions of the flesh. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak, evil, uh, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there's even this sense in which 
as you, rep, as you represent your heavenly city, as you represent your heavenly citizenship, the hope and the goal is perhaps you can bring some people of the earthly city into the heavenly city through your witness, through your conduct. And that good conduct includes being subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. In other words, by being heavenly citizens, we actually care about our earthly citizenship. We actually honor earthly leaders even, the earthly government above us, so insofar as they do not cause us to do evil or go against our Lord. And passages like 1 Peter 2, passages like Romans 13, passages like our main passage today, Jeremiah 29, they all show us this, that being an exile who seeks shalom means... We neither plunge into culture nor escape from culture. If, if there's a main point to this message, that's this. And I do have it projected for you. Being an exile who seeks shalom means we neither plunge into culture, feet first, nor escape from culture. Recognizing we are exiles do not, does not mean we don't care about certain issues or we don't fight for what we believe is right in our land. But it does change our posture. We have the posture of exiles. We do it as a people who recognize we still are passing through. We do it as a people who ultimately represent Christ more than anything else and his kingdom, not our earthly kingdom. I recently came across a debate amongst Christians in the, in the blogosphere. Uh, I believe it was about last year. And it was a, this debate was a good illustration of perhaps the tension we see between uh, not plunging into culture, but not escaping from culture either. And uh, this, this debate was about the topic of empathy. You know, empathy is, is, is a very valued virtue in our culture today. Uh, you know, there, there have been great speakers and thinkers and authors who have spoken a good deal about empathy, not, you know, not necessarily Christian speakers and authors. And there are some, there, last year, there was this debate where some Christian leaders were going so far as to say, empathy is not good. They were, some were even going as far as to say, empathy is a sin. Because if you're too empathetic, you, you become defiled by the culture. If you're too empathetic over the earthly city, you become like the earthly city. You will, becomes, uh, you will follow the earthly city and its sinful practices and its sinful beliefs. And of course, it was a debate. So there was people, other Christians saying, "No, no, that's not how it is." And I do appreciate uh, this uh, one one Christian professor named Warren Throckmorton who who chimed in and basically said, "Empathy is not the problem, right? The problem is a lack of discernment. The problem is if our empathy is done without an identity in Christ." And, and he concludes, he says, "Empathy isn't acceptance of things you don't agree with." Empathy, empathy doesn't require you to give up any position you might otherwise have. Rather, empathy is simply understanding the inner world of other people. It is all about being able to relate to them and understand what they are going through. It is quite important in human functioning, and when absent, is associated with cruelty and antisocial behavior. People who seek the shalom of the city while maintaining the posture of an exile will be empathetic to what is going on all around us. 
We'll be empathetic even perhaps to people and groups that we disagree with without wholesale acceptance of everything that is going on in the world around us. We are not meant to put up walls. We are not, we are not meant to, to separate ourselves from those, from those worldly groups or people or beliefs. But we are to get up close and personal. But as we maintain our identity and citizenship in Christ and in heaven, we can get up close and personal as exiles. So that's the first point. We seek shalom as exiles. And secondly, in our passage, we see we seek shalom for the city through prayer and godly citizenship. Once again, in verse 7, the last verse that we read of our text, it says this. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, on the city's behalf. After the shooting in Uvalde, if you were on social media, even just a little bit, I'm sure you've seen people, many people say, thoughts and prayers are not enough. Thoughts and prayers are not enough. And people said that for many different reasons. I think there are people who said that just because they're flat out cynical. There are some people who are just tired of that sentiment or perhaps even the the overuse of that phrase, thoughts and prayers, our thoughts and prayers. And I think many are simply frustrated because they want to see change in our country. They They don't want to see this anymore. We're tired of this. And there's a very real sense in which we should want to offer more than thoughts and prayers. We should. It's almost biblical, even, almost. Uh, in James chapter 2, James tells us that it's, it's no good. If you see someone who is in need, if you see someone who uh, is hungry and without clothing, to just simply offer well wishes without actually helping them, without actually finding a way to give them food and clothing. It's no good. So let's not immediately just dismiss this idea, thoughts and prayers are not enough. Oh, that's so ungodly, that's so unchristian. There is a big but, however, right? Uh, However, may we never hold to that phrase, thoughts and prayers are not enough, in such a way that suggests the devaluing of prayer or devaluing the power of prayer. We we are Christians, after all, and we believe that prayer is a tremendous act. We, We believe that we are asking the God of the universe, the Lord of hosts, to bless to comfort and to heal and to be present. And that is never a small thing. In our passage today, God tells his people, remember, in this context, to pray for this city, which is exiling them, oppressing them, holding them captive. And God is saying, even these people, who you will probably consider your enemies in Babylon, still I want you to pray for them. And of course, many years later, Jesus would say the same thing. He would say, pray for those who persecute you. Why? At least one reason is because when you pray, it does something in your own heart first. Before you do any good deed, before you do any act of mercy or justice, 
When you pray, your heart is changed. Your heart is softened. Your heart is made more tender towards those for whom you pray. When you pray for someone who opposes you in this city, someone who disagrees with you, someone who thinks you're crazy, someone who thinks your ideas are foolish even, when you pray for them, your heart is softened towards them. Even if you still disagree with them and they disagree with you. When you pray for those who are hurting in the city. When you pray for those who are grieving. When you pray for families in Uvalde, Texas. Your heart is made even more tender towards them. You're asking for the supernatural help of God. And not only that, you are truly standing with them. Weeping with them. Grieving with them. As Henry Nolan once said, much of prayer is grieving. It is no small thing to pray. First Timothy chapter 2 tells us we need to pray for our leaders even, our, our government leaders, perhaps even ungodly leaders, leaders perhaps who, are, who have nothing to do with Christ. We're still to pray for them. And we need to pray for our government and our leaders and those in power above us, especially when we're disappointed in them and with them, especially when we're frustrated with them, especially when we want better for our city, for our country. That's, especially, that's exactly when we need to pray. And as we ask God to change things in our land, the more we pray, the more he is changing you as well. And of course, once we do pray, once we have prayed, we can do, do more to seek shalom for the city. You know, in Jeremiah he tells the Israelites, while you're living in Babylon, settle down, settle in, right? Build houses, raise families, plant gardens. In other words, do good work. Basically, he's saying, be like good citizens of Babylon, even though you aren't actually citizens of Babylon. And we are called to do that as well. Uh, we do have to recognize, of course, that we're in a different context. We're not Babylonian exiles. We are living in America in a democracy, and we do have more rights and more ability, more power even, through which we can seek shalom for the city. D.A. Carson puts it well. It's a long quote, but it's, it's a good one. He writes this. The biblical injunctions to submit to the state as to God means, in our context in America, that we must take our obligations toward a participatory democracy ser- seriously. This combined with the moral obligation to do good to the city... Jeremiah 29, involves believers in matters of government at some level, all the way from voting to influencing government to legislating and even governing in ways that were impossible for Paul or Luke or Jeremiah even. Doubtless, it also increases the possibility of being snookered into confusing the kingdom of God with our government or party. So it is a godly thing to get involved with the government. It is a godly thing to vote. It is godly to want to influence legislation, to to raise people to action. It is a godly thing when you do that for the sake of the shalom of the city, knowing you are ultimately an exile, knowing that ultimately neither the left nor the right is the kingdom of God. That no political figure or political party will ever fully align with Jesus because only Jesus is the true good shepherd. And only heaven 
is where our true citizenship lies. And I really do believe that understanding and being okay with being an exile will help you actually become a better agent of seeking shalom for your city. When you recognize that it's okay if I'm a minority, it's okay if my beliefs on certain issues are of the minority, it's okay if people will oppose me or, once again, think I'm even foolish in in what I hold to. If I understand, that's okay. I'm meant to be an exile as a Christian. It allows me to be both a more courageous and a more compassionate agent of seeking shalom for the city. We'll be able to address issues with charity, with empathy, and with godliness. You know, in my research for this message, I stumbled upon this great example from history of a Christian community who really exemplified what it meant to be exiles who seek shalom for the city. I don't even know how I stumbled upon this. You know, when a pastor is preparing a sermon, there's like so many rabbit holes we go down on. And uh, I'm so grateful I I ended up uh, stumbling upon this about the village of Le Chambon. Le Chambon. I'm sorry if you speak French because I don't. Uh, This is a village in France, in in the southern part of France, where during World War II, these people were able to save the lives of thousands of Jews during the Nazi occupation of France during World War II. They saved thousands and thousands of lives. The number of people who were hidden in that village and fed and taken care of was greater than the number of people who actually lived in that village. And these people were mostly Huguenots, which means they were... Uh, reformed Protestants, which were a great minority, a persecuted minority in France. Uh, They were a people who knew what it was like to even be killed for their faith. They really knew what it it meant to be an exile for Christ. And one author uh, writing about Le Chambon, he writes this. He writes, this is the reason why they were able to do what they did in Le Chambon. This, This act of such heroism and bravery and sacrifice. He writes this, This is because the convictions shared among the villagers, like Trachmas, who was their pastor, uh, were based on a Huguenot upbringing in which centuries of persecution and the religious value of demonstrating fellowship in a time of trial figured prominently. Halley, another writer, relates, Being a minority had helped make them clear-cut in their thinking and firm in their convictions. These were people who knew what it was like to be exiles, persecuted, oppressed even. And these people were also people who knew Jesus, the one who taught them to love their neighbor and to seek shalom. And I pray that we we can be a people like this, that Christ central, that you and I can be a people who, who are okay with suffering, who are okay with, the, with not being the most powerful, influential people. And as a result, we care for those who suffer. We grieve with those who suffer. And we seek shalom for those who suffer. 
even at our expense, even if it requires great sacrifice, even if it requires great discomfort, because we know Jesus. We know the one who sought our shalom. As we close, I want to go back to the context of Jeremiah and our passage. These, during this time of exile, once again, this is a hard time for the Israelites. And there were these false prophets that came and basically kind of preached what they wanted to hear. These, these false prophets, they came and they said, you know, this exile will only last two years. This Babylonian captivity will only last two years. And Jeremiah had to come as a true prophet, holding the true word of God, and he had to tell him, actually, it's not two years. It's going to be 70. It's going to be 70 years of captivity. And here, we didn't read this in our passage, but here's how he moves forward in Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for shalom and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. It's a, it's a familiar verse, isn't it? I know the plans I have for you. Plans for a future, for, for welfare, not for evil. A future and a hope. <laughs> and, you know, it's graduation season. We just went to a graduation yesterday for some uh, dear seminary brothers. And we, we sometimes hear this verse in that context, right? It's like a hopeful, uh, uh, you know, everyone's looking to the future. I, God knows the plans he has for you, plans for hope and a future. And that's not such a bad use of that verse. But if we remember the context, this is at a very hard time. This is when God's people are feeling hopeless. This is when God's people are feeling like, what is going on right now? How can this be happening? And the Lord shows up and declares these promises. There is a hope for you. There is shalom for you. There is a future for you. And we do know that this would ultimately be fulfilled, not just with the end of the 70 years, but this would be ultimately fulfilled so many years later through Jesus Christ. Jesus would be the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. He would be the ultimate bringer of shalom. He would be the ultimate bringer of a future and a hope. He would also do something that... Nobody quite expected. He didn't come as a political leader with a conquering army, but he came as a servant, ultimately dying on a cross. And Jesus would become, actually, though he was God, though he is holy, though, his, though his, his home was in heaven, he would leave and come down and dwell with a sinful people like us in order to seek shalom for us. And he would be exiled to that cross where he gave up his own shalom and he would be broken and he would be not at peace. And through this unexpected brokenness, God brought the ultimate hope, salvation, the forgiveness of, the forgiveness of sins, a heavenly home for weary exiles. Brothers and sisters, we've been purchased with the blood of Christ. May that mean so much to you and to me that Christ is the ultimate giver of shalom. And because he is ours, 
we can now seek shalom more and more for our city and for everyone around us, even in the midst of hatred, even in the midst of injustice and tragedy and evil. We look to Jesus and we see the greatest of hope that shines brightly, so brightly that even in the midst of tear-filled eyes, through tear-filled eyes, we will still see the hope and future that he brings. Let's take some time to pray at this moment. Uh, We will pray for those in Uvalde, Texas, especially. Uh, I'm going to lead us in just three different topics. We're going to pray all together. Uh, Pastor Harold had shared this prayer earlier this week with all of us. And uh, we will first, let's just spend a few moments grieving and praying for the families in Uvalde who have lost dear children and dear mothers. Let's pray for Rob Elementary and the surrounding community at this time. Let's pray for those who grieve. Lord, what can we do but cry out to you knowing that you also weep with those who weep knowing that truly you are the great comforter. And we pray for those families who are devastated and broken at this time. Lord, we pray for truly supernatural healing, your supernatural presence upon them. And we pray for every possible agent of shalom professionals, volunteers, counselors, law enforcement, your church. Oh, Lord, bring shalom in Uvalde. Bring comfort. Bring a great sense of your love for them. Lord, as we pray for those in Uvalde, we are reminded of our great need, the world's great need for Jesus. But Lord, we recognize our own personal need for him as well. We recognize there is brokenness in us. There is sin in us. And we thank you that Jesus ministers to us and seeks our shalom, especially by giving up his body and his blood. As we come to the table in a few moments, oh Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to continue to feed and nourish, equip your people so that we would honor you and seek the good of those around us. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.